Coming up next on Inside Golf Podcast, might be my favorite episode of the year. Kobe DuBose and I breaking down the entire DraftKings slate for the 150th Open Championship at St. Andrews. Before we bring on Kobe, we are presented, as always, by RickRunGoods.com. All of the stats, tools, and numbers that we'll be referencing, you can find on RickRunGoods.com. If you liked this episode with Kobe and want more of my DraftKings thoughts, my article will be up on the website tomorrow morning with a full chalk report of every single range as well as my core plays. And if you have any last-minute questions for me, best place to reach me will be in the Rick Run Good Slack channel. So head on over today, rickrungood.com, promo code Andy. We would love to have you as part of the team. One more final reminder as well. Last chance to be entered into the draw to win $200 in cash. All you have to do is leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It takes approximately 30 seconds and goes a very long way for me. It is my final giveaway of the year, my final big episode of the year, and I will be announcing that winner on the Sunday pod. So if you could be so generous to leave a quick Apple Podcast review goes a very, very long way. All right. I think that is all that we have at the top. Let's talk to Kobe. All right. Kobe DuBose is here. He's back in his office in Houston. Last time we spoke, you were literally walking off the 18th green at St. Andrews. Would you say the dust has settled or are you still kind of riding it high? No, I'm still on cloud nine. I've been looking forward to this week and this podcast since that day. I've had my old course yardage book with me beside my bed. I've been studying, I think watching all the coverage has just brought back all the good memories. So we're, we're still, we're still riding pretty hot. So you sent me, I think it was Monday night. You sent me a flurry of texts breaking down the holes. And actually since then I wanted to use some of the points that you were making in podcasts, but I didn't know how to articulate them as well as you had. So I was, so I went on the golf gambling podcast last night and I was like, I literally just read all the texts that you sent me about it because it was, it was so well done. Good. Yeah. I, I decided, you know, if I've got all these resources that I brought home from the old course, I might as well look at them, including the old yardage book. You know, it's, it's such a simple thing, but there's some good stuff in there. I think, I think as we're probably going to talk about, what um, what I see happening this week and what people see happening this week diverge, not entirely, but a little bit in ways that are meaningful. So let's dive right into it because I think we're probably talking about the same thing here. So I am pretty, I don't want to say that I've changed my tune, but I'm pr- I've gone like from thinking that driver is a uh, a pretty strong advantage on the old course to honestly I'm kind of at the point now where I think the way that this course is playing it's actually going to take driver out of players hands like a lot and you did a really good job of breaking down how some of these holes with how firm and fast the fairways are playing it's at, you're actually not even going to be able to hit driver on a lot of these holes. So expand on that a little bit further because I'm starting to go a little bit more so into that camp as well. Yeah, and I think it has to do a lot with wind direction. They're going to get this wind out of the west, southwest, and that, generally speaking, is going to be into the wind on the front nine for the most part. I mean, it's out and back with a couple of variations in there around the turn. 
but it means that these holes that we know is so hard on the back nine are going to be playing pretty much straight downwind and then downwind out of the right. That's atypical. I think a lot of times you see the road hole play super hard because this thing is into the wind and gnarly. Um, and you see the front nine sometimes play a little bit easier because it's downwind. So this isn't exactly a typical wind. And so what it's going to do, I think, on the back nine particularly, there's some holes where you just you run out of room. You know, like you're if you're yeah. going to hit driver, you're driving it into spots that are 10, 15 yards wide with out of bounds right and gorse left and bunkers that are kind of coming off. The contours are feeding everything toward these bunkers that are on the left side. So it's really going to produce almost a more difficult strategic golf course because they're going to have to decide sort of when and where to hit driver. I have to pick their spots a little more. I was looking, for instance, at number 13. I remember playing that hole. You know, Caddy said you got 220 to cover these fairway bunkers, the coffins, which you cannot be an absolute one-stroke pony. Um, he says, just hit it over this one on the left. So I hit driving iron, and it's playing a little bit downwind. We didn't have a ton of wind. And there's about 270. So I had 50 yards of run out on this fairway. I covered the bunker by maybe five yards. We get up there thinking it's going to be perfect right in the middle of the fairway, and all of a sudden I'm in the rough up under a mound. I got a blind shot. I went back and watched the 2010 – Louis Ustase in year, and he kind of hit the same shot because they had a downwind uh, right. final round, and he runs into the hay himself. So you start looking at it, you're going, as firm as these fairways are going to be, there's just not a lot of room to land the ball between the bunkers and the gorse. So they're going to have to really figure it out and potentially play more conservative than they really want to because there's just nowhere to hit it. It's going to take driver out of guys' hands a little bit. We're going to be seeing – it's going to be totally weird this week. We're going to be seeing irons go 300 yards, right? That's that's not something you see on tour much. And I think we've seen a little bit of it in other opens that have been firm. I think people need to keep in mind, not every open plays super firm and fast. I mean, you yeah. like to think of it as Link Scott, but this looks browner than we normally see St. Andrews. Ordinarily, we see it a little bit rainy. It's been super dry. Um, this place is is crusty. I mean, it's looking more like Hoylake when Tiger just hit his four iron, you know, three iron, 300 yards all week. So the guys are going to have to make some real calls on, you know, where to hit it because if you hit it too far, you're hitting it, one, into bad angles on these mounds. People talk about St. Andrews being super flat, but it's flat with, you know, mounds and hills everywhere, and that's where you get these really awkward, bad lies, patchy rough, gorse, all the good stuff that you like about St. Andrews. So, you know, we'll see, but I think it's going to create some strategic choices that's going to bring in a lot of different styles of play this week. Um, and the, the bomber narrative maybe isn't as powerful as, as people have believed that it would be here. Okay, two points that I want to touch on. First one, I noticed the Brown thing too, and I went back to go back and look at the 2015 U.S. Open, and you're right, it wasn't... St. Andrews has not been this brown in the last couple opens, actually. And I think, you know, there are probably people that are sitting here listening and saying, okay, well, now they bake this out super, super firm. It's going to be this course that's already pretty short for these guys is going to be playing even shorter. I would say that firm and fast conditions are going to make this so much, so much harder, despite the fact that these guys are going to have a lot of irons and not really going to have to hit drivers because what firm and fast conditions do on a course like St. Andrews on any course, to be honest with you, is they make the fairways a lot less wide, 
right? Because once the ball hits the ground, it's really hard to stop. And the way that the ground contours work at a place like St. Andrews is they have these little pop bunkers, but they actually play a lot bigger than the bunkers are because the because the ways of the ground contours. And there's going to be situations where you're not going to be able to stop a ball from hitting into these bunkers. And there's a couple holes, I think you're mentioning 13-2, where you basically have this tiny little runway suddenly between bunkers on one side of the fairway and gorse on the other side of the fairway. So suddenly, this narrative that you have these widest fairways on tour, suddenly they turn a whole lot smaller. And the other thing that I would say about the the conditions of the course, and I apologize because I've definitely said this on a uh, another podcast, so I apologize if I'm repeating myself too much to the listeners. But to me, this Open Championship is a massive and massive, massive inflection point for the where modern technology and St. Andrews meet, and they're at a bit of a crossroads, in my opinion. And as you said to me before over text, I don't think that the RNA is going down without a fight. I mean, this is. People forget too, like the RNA is St. Andrews. This would be the equivalent if there was a problem with TPC Sawgrass at the PGA Tour. Like the the RNA needs to continue to be going back to St. Andrews for the next 50, 100 years. And this has been something that they're not dumb, that Martin Slumbers has been talking about since prior to the 2015 Open, right? Where there's only so much more that you could do to a course like St. Andrews they already have teas in like cow pastures, right? That are like a thousand yards away from some of these greens, right? So I, I don't think they're sitting there saying like, oh, we need this target score of six, seven under, but this 25 under bomb away aimlessly, blow the, overpower the course. I think that's baloney. I really do. Yeah, I think they can dial this place up and they, there was talk, I mean, we were obviously there over the U.S. Open, right? So that's been three and a half, four weeks ago. There was some real excitement among the caddies and among just the people around there. We spoke to a lot of folks. I mean, the starter, just folks associated with this course about how dry it had been, about how they loved the conditions. You could tell they were getting really excited that they were going to be able to actually get this golf course charged up. There's only been four more weeks of that, you know, with no play, wind hitting it every day and not a lot of rain. Uh, this, the dry summer is going to give them choices. And what you're going to see, I think, they know that the real defense to St. Andrews is that they're going to pin these holes uh, right. on little knobs everywhere. And what I realized there, you know, a typical golf course, you hit a wedge and it just keeps getting better. And all of a sudden your your 10-foot putt is now four feet because it you drug it back to the hole. doesn't really happen there all that much. The holes are on knobs. The ball gets deflected away. You see balls move away from the hole much more than you do toward the hole, even on short shots. So it's really hard to get the ball super close there. That's why you see, you know, you'll realize on Friday morning when you're watching a guy hit a wedge to 15 feet and everybody's clapping and everybody's talking about how it was a great shot. That's because you weren't getting it any closer. You ran the risk of, you know, going down the wrong slope and being 38 feet away. Right. So that's what St. Andrews has that a lot of places don't. And they've got so much pinnable ground on these greens because they're so big. They can choose to put them, in a number of gnarly places. Your average tour course has got the one part of the green that they can pin it on Sunday that might be difficult. Well, at St. Andrews, these greens have, you know, countless knobs and places they can put it. There are no funnel pins out there. I didn't didn't find one in my two rounds. So when you get firm conditions combined with that, 
you've got to, you've got balls bouncing and you're, you're going to have an even harder time finding those little places on those little knobs. And I think they can dial that up as much as they want to kind of, I don't think the RNA is into manipulating score, uh, but I do think they're into, you know, making this a real challenge and not being embarrassed and they have the conditions to do it. It seems like they're going to. Right. And they, uh, by the way, these greens are so big. There's cer- it completely changes the way the whole play is based on a pin position. You hear some of the yeah. players talk about that before where a hole that a pin on the right side of the green plays completely different. I mean, you'll see guys hit driver off a hole and talk about this. If the pin is on the right side of the green and iron off the hole and take a completely different strategy. If they see that the pin is on the left side of the green too. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we had so many conversations with our caddies. I, I remember just it, every hole was sort of a, the caddy going into the book and really thinking deeply about the best strategy for how to play the hole. And it made the rounds take six hours, um, which is you get a lot of that out there. But it is a golf course that I mean, we've heard so many of the guys talk about it. It just lends deeply toward a strategic approach. And the reason for that is – I mean, there's a million different ways to play it, depending on where the where the pins are, what the wind's doing, what kind of risk you want to take on. It's not so simple. I think a lot of people in their minds heard some content this week, just talk about it as a wedge fest. Just because these guys are going to have wedges in their hand, it's not your typical tour stop where right. a wedge means you're 112 out and you who can hit it closest to the hole. It's not that. It's who can figure out the right spin and trajectory and where to bring it in. Um, and if you miss, if you're not precise, all of a sudden you've hit the wrong slope and you're rolling into a bunker and you're making five or six. So all that is out there. Whereas your typical wedge fest, the reason the scoring so low is that worst case scenario, you hit a bad wedge and you pulled it to 25 feet. And now you made par. That is not the case here. Um, a good shot will be rewarded, but a bad shot can be punished with more than just a two putt par. So I think that's the big difference. And I think you'll find yourself watching it Thursday morning. And you will quickly realize that, like, oh, my God, this is an entirely different challenge than what we're used to. Maybe I didn't think about that enough. So I think now is the time to just recondition your brain because this is totally different from your typical wedge fest, even though they're going to have 80 yards in. So given all that we've talked about and the fact that we seem to be on maybe a little bit of a different page than other people in terms of what it takes this week, what type of player profile are you really looking for? Because there's so many like buzzwords this week that everyone just keeps going back to with like creativity and imagination. And they're true, by the way, like I I agree with that, but like, how do you, the thing that we've just been harping on for the last 15 minutes is that this is so different and it's a lot of this stuff feels unquantifiable to me. So how do you kind of translate what we're thinking about into selecting players um, that you're going to fill out your DraftKings lineups with? Right. That's a good question. I, there's no strokes gained imagination. Right. right? (laughs) Although that is what you are trying to find strokes gained boxy strokes gained uh, creativity. So how do we take what we have, the tools we have, our stats and what we know about the players and all that and translate that into the right player for this course? I've done it. I found myself last night. Um, I spent a lot of time with Ben Coley's just player by player profiles because they 
you know, he, he gave a breakdown of sort of past St. Andrews form and all this stuff that maybe you didn't think about for these 160 guys, half of them we haven't heard of, or we don't know deeply. That's what makes this so challenging. I've looked at past open form. Cause I think it, I mean, links golf is such a weird, unique challenge. The guys who are good at it tend to be good at it. Right. I mean, it, these courses are different, right? Carnoustie and St. Andrews, they have a lot of the same stuff going on, but they're pretty different. And then obviously Muirfield and everything you're going to get, but the guys that have learned how to play in the wind, learned how to play in the conditions, learned to get used to the bouncy fairways and bringing shots in creatively. I think that shows itself year after year after year. So I've looked a little more at like open form generally than maybe I thought I was going to. St. Andrew's form is tricky because we haven't seen most of these guys enough. I think one mistake people might make is focusing too much on the Dunhill. Oh my God. Is, Those pins are so easy there. They set that course up so differently for the well, Dunhill. And it's soft. It gets a lot of it, much more rain in the fall. It's a little bit like Bandon or places like that where you get firm and windy in the winter or excuse me, in the summer. But then when you get to the winter, you get more wet and less wind, right? So less wind and a softer golf course is obviously going to be much easier. Combine that with the pins it's an entirely different challenge. Now, if I see a guy like Bern Wiesberger hasn't, he's broken par in every round he's ever shot here, including a ton in the Dunhill. There's a lot of good vibes flowing right. through him when he shows up. That makes me feel okay. But I've, I've tried to not be fooled by some of the Dunhill stuff because it's a totally different golf course. But I've, there's courses, I think, that reward creativity. I know a lot of people have brought up the Augusta Comp, which I think is an okay one for a number of reasons. There's some reasons why the Augusta Comp is problematic. But I've tried to think about who are the guys who I know can control their golf ball in the wind? Who are the guys that I've seen be comfortable with balls rolling on greens, a little throwing a little bit of short game and a little bit of scrambling. Some of it has to do with kind of the eye test. I don't think there's an easy way to put this together, which is, you know, that's tough to tell people. Right. But it's a little bit of everything. It's and a lot of it's qualitative. Like who have I seen be able to do this and hit these shots and who have I seen, really, I'm looking to check players off and eliminate players that I've seen kind of struggle when um, the equation ends up having too many inputs, right? Who are the track man golfers? That's the easiest way to kind of get right. rid of guys versus looking to build the perfect player profile. Maybe the easiest way to think about it is, what is the profile I don't want? And then you can start eliminating those guys, and that makes it a little easier. One more question for you before we start talking about the players. I want to talk about wave stacking for a second. So the wind that I've, and I, it's interesting because like you click on the super forecast and the super forecast seems like it's showing a lot more wind than like the regular wind finder and the super forecast for Friday is not going to come out. So I'd, again, I would just keep checking this throughout the next 36 hours or whatever. Yeah, We're recording sure. this, by the way, on Tuesday afternoon. I'm not seeing much right now in terms of a wave advantage. I've still heard theories that it is potentially advantageous to stack even if you don't see an advantage just because things can change so quickly in Scotland. So what's the downside of doing that, at least in a couple lineups, depending on how many you're playing? Do you have a hard stance on that? Are you leaning any way in or in any direction as it stands on Tuesday afternoon? I have not regretted the weeks that I have... Um, you know, played a weather stack. I've made Me neither. Even at, even when I get it wrong, <laughs> I did it at the USO. You know, and it wasn't even it wasn't a huge uh, stack uh, wave advantage there. But I got a six of six through in the. Well, there were only like literally three six of sixes um, in one of the big contests I was in, and I got one of them through. 
you know, being able to get six of sixes through when other people can't, giving yourself an edge in this, which is so hard to find one. I find often that the reason I don't want to deal with the weather is because I'm lazy. Mm. Um, it makes building lineups harder and more complicated and more work. And that's a really stupid, horrible reason to not do it. It's never, and I'm convinced myself, well, the real reason you don't want to do it is because blah, blah, blah. Really, it's just because you're lazy and you'd rather just plug it into your generator and upload your file and be done with it. Well, your competition, if they put in the work and they do it, you know, they're getting an edge over you just because you were too lazy to want to you know, do this. So I'm going to keep my eye on the weather. I, I would advise anybody do that as we get closer. I have heard one theory that I think is smart, which is, you know, the best prediction is, is going to be what happens on, I guess, in this case for us, Wednesday morning, but ordinarily Thursday morning. That's where we've got the best information about what happens. Meanwhile, Friday afternoon is still a long way away. So I tend to wait earlier in the week more with the forecast, right? So if I know that we're going to get great weather early on uh, Thursday, then I give that more weight versus trying to predict exactly what's going to happen on Friday afternoon. So I think that's that's something that I would keep in mind if I were trying to play the weather this week, but certainly worth your time and your effort. One more general question, because you have me thinking now. In terms of like ownership at this major championship, and we've talked about this every time we've done this. Does this change your strategy or view on ownership at all, given the fact that you could probably make the argument that there's the most randomness and variance involved in this major? Yeah, I think so. I think I'm usually a little more willing to... I'm always willing. I had such a high ownership lineup that was so good at the uh, the U.S. Open, and I know you made a comment about it. It's kind of I didn't intend to, right? I ended up on some guys that ended up higher than I thought they would be. Um, but I think at this major, you can feel more comfortable riding the variance because when we see weird guys pop up, we see Paul Dunn and Jordan Niebrugge, and you know all these guys you never heard Ashley of. Chester's the most accurate man in the world. I was doing a deep dive into Ashley Chester's last night. We'll, we'll get into Ashley we'll Chester. Oh, he's, he's, he might be in the player pool. No, but it's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of that. The downside of that variance is what you're trying to ride here. Um, and this is a, this is a variable week. So I think there's a benefit to playing lower ownership and to taking some chances here. Um, in this major, maybe more so than certainly more so than the masters. Right. Mm. Um, or, or other tournaments that we know so well. Like the uh, U.S. Open, too, I would add into that mix as well. Like the U.S. Open kind of feels like the type of place where, you know, you hear that line, like there's only 30 or so guys that can actually win the tournament, where sure. I don't know if I feel that. I feel that way this week. All right, so let's let's start with the 10K range. Rory McIlroy, 11.1. Scotty, 11, flat 11. John Rahm, 10.8. JT 10.5, Morikawa 10.3, Spieth flat 10K. Okay, I'm going to give you my predictions. I think Rory is going to be at around like an even 20%-ish. I think Spieth is going to be right behind him. I think Spieth is going to be very close. I'd say Spieth is in like the 18, 19 range. I think JT is going to be low, mid-teens, like like 13 to 16. I think Scheffler and Rom are going to be sub 15. And I think Colin is going to be sub like eight. Uh, do you have any strong disagreements with that breakdown? No, I think that's right. I, I would go more aggressive than that. I think Colin's coming in sub five. Wow. Um, in some of these. Contests. What a world. 
Yeah, agreed. I, people can get out on him. I mean, I had him at the Genesis when he came in 3% old in some of those contests. Um, so I think he's a guy that people, I don't know, for some reason, they get out on him quicker than they get out on other guys. Of course, he's also, I don't, he's being priced higher than Spieth and, and Xander and Fitzpatrick, all guys that people are going to want to play, um, is going to take away even more ownership. Um, but yeah, I think that's right. I think Scheffler and Rom, I do think Scheffler comes in a little higher on than Rom. Um, although I think Grumpy John has the, he's, there's a possibility that he becomes, uh, the guy that everybody thinks is going to be low owned and then hundred percent. Yeah. And they pivot to him and then all of a sudden, oops, it was really Scheffler. Now that could flip, right? You could see if the projections are Scheffler, 12%, Rom 9%. You could see it coming in Rom 13, Scheffler 8, just because people thought they were going to get sneaky with, with uh, the big Spanish, as my wife called it. Um, so, you know, I can see that happening. I do think Rory comes in probably around 20%. I think Rory's a, a fun play for people this week. It's fun to think about Rory winning. He's like, he's like high-end Tiger, right? You got right. two my two favorite storylines of this week. Strokes happened. gain feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Tiger winning this thing and then Rory with the redemption at St. Andrews, right? Those are your two stories that everybody wants to be a part of. But I think that's right. I do think Spieth is going to come in. If Spieth didn't have Xander right below him, I think Spieth would be the highest on player this week. I agree. Um, but I think those two guys are going to, well, there'll be a lot of people who play them together, but those two guys will um, kind of eat at each other's ownership. So that they're both just high rather than, you know, one of them just being totally wash out 30%. I was going to say, do not start Spieth Xander. Like if you, if you love Jordan Spieth, which I do, I like Jordan Spieth a fair amount. And if you love Xander, there's so many ways to get different with these guys because, and we saw this a little bit at the U S open, but there are going to be guys above nine K Hovland might be 2%. Right. Hideki and DJ are both going to be probably in the 7% range. So, like, if you like Rory, which I do, if you like Spieth, which I do as well, I think there are a lot of different ways where you could play one of those guys, just pair them with one of the guys that are a lot lower. The thing with Rory's is tricky for me, and Spieth is tricky for me because. The ownership is tough, and I have a very difficult time sitting here and saying, okay, Jordan Spieth is four times more likely to outperform Colin Morikawa this week. Like, if you gave me Spieth versus Morikawa and you gave me four to one odds on Morikawa, I'm taking that one every single day and twice on Sunday. The issue is, I, I think Scotty Scheffler, John Rahm, and JT and Morikawa. Like, I could see all those guys missing the cut. Rom is more like, I think he's going to finish T34. But I could see Scheffler missing the cut. I could see JT missing the cut. I could definitely see Morikawa missing the cut. For me, just envisioning it, I have a hard time envisioning Spieth and Rory not being relevant in this tournament. Yeah, I told you the other day, I think the reason I like betting Rory, and I've been... I mean, Rory is crack at majors. I told you I am a <laughs> crackhead. Um, but the real reason is because you know when you bet Rory that that ticket is going to have a chance. Right. You, you know, and we always we joke about it, right? His The Sunday runs that he's making and all that. I mean, at the PJ Championship, God, he got it to four under very early and really just needed one more birdie 
we didn't know it at the time, but he wasn't that far off, and he's always going to be there. The way he plays, gonna, he's going to be in it. You know, he's just the king of finishing T5 in majors, which is comforting on some level, like that, that you're not going to have the complete washout week. Uh, so I guess what we're saying is he has a high floor. Um, I agree. I think JT has a lot of miscut equity. I think Grumpy John, I don't – I'm with you. I, I don't really see him missing the cut. It's just kind of solid. But he could very easily do what he did last week. Um, and Morikawa, he could get blown off the planet. And we know he's he's kind of king of the track men golfers these days. Um, so I'm with you on that. But, you know, the reality is if these guys didn't have – if they had higher floors and we were sure they were all going to make the cut, then they wouldn't be low on, right? So that's – and that's the game you're playing, right? You're sort of having to take that risk because the upside with somebody like Morikawa, if he does have it dialed in, he can win you a million dollars, right? That's the that's really why you're playing this. So you have to weigh those two things. Scheffler's probably the play, huh? If I mean, if we're really if we're really boiling it down, because I like Scheffler more than I like Rom and Justin and Morikawa, and I don't think that Scheffler is. I don't think he's getting past 15. I really don't. I just, especially in the higher stakes, and you probably speak to this more than I can, I still feel like there's like a little bit of a lack of respect towards him. I still think think a lot of high stakes players, and not necessarily saying they're they're wrong, like in terms of if we're talking macro here, big picture, I'm not sold that Scheffler's better than Rom long term. He's he's been better for the last year, which is a fairly large sample size. But I still think Scheffler will be sub fifteen. I really do believe that, and I think in the higher stakes, Rom will definitely be higher than him. Well, the way that I look at it, I try to look at these prices in terms of how they fit into lineups. I think particularly the higher stakes, people are. You're hand building a lot more lineups in the four thousand, you know, in the the four 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 that we're going to have this week, the Mega Millie. That whereas a lot of people are using optimizers and things to build their twenty five dollar lineups, uh, you're putting a lot of thought and care into how these pieces fit together because it really it's a puzzle. So Scotty Scheffler at eleven thousand dollars. I mean, this we'll get down the board. We'll talk about this more, but I think it affects how you play at the top. It's kind of it's a tough six k range this week. A lot of guys people have not heard of, a lot of guys people don't like, a lot of guys with some bad vibes. It's hard. I mean, I there's some guys down there that I like, but it's oh, not a comfortable too. place. <laughs> yeah, oh, but it's not a comfortable place to really be clicking around. And if you start taking Scheffler at eleven thousand dollars, you're you're putting yourself into that range, or else you're gonna be living in the low sevens. So, which is also a range that I think people are gonna be uncomfortable with. So I think there's a lot of guys who are gonna start clicking around and just realize, like, oh. Like that $200 that I saved with John Rahm or even going down to Justin Thomas, who everyone loves in the high stakes, you know, God, that $500 allows me to go from having to play a $6,800 guy to, you know, whoever's at $7,300. That is going to matter a lot. Um, Or you just go up and you bite the bullet. with. So I think Scheffler's in a squeeze spot, kind of with an awkward price that you don't love him enough to want to just totally destroy the rest of your lineup construction when you could just – go play Rory and, and lock him into, you know, 50% of your lineups or whatever people are going to do. But I like Scheffler. I've told you this for weeks. Um, <laughs> saving him in one and done. I think he's – I will have a, a large investment on Scotty Scheffler this week. And if he plays well, I will I will do well. So, you know, that, that should answer your question where I come from. 
There we go, people. Hashtag picks. You thought you weren't <laughs> going to get them. Um, let's move down a little bit farther into the nines. I'm going to give you a hot ownership take. I think there's a sneaky chance Cameron Smith is the highest owned player on the entire slate because I think that, yeah, I know bull take. I, I, I 50% believe that. The reason why I say that is I think Xander is the best candidate for everybody thinks everybody is using Xander and then he comes in a little bit lower than people think. Like I'm still thinking 17, 18%, but nobody is going to be 25 on this slate. In my opinion, I'm talking about, you know, the $5, 150 max. Sure. I'm sure, sure. Things could get out of hand in the higher stakes. Um, yeah. But I think Cameron Smith is the guy that everybody loves, but thinks is not the popular play. And I've seen him on a shit ton of betting cards. Yeah. I've seen him being touted a ton. I complete. we touted him a month ago and people yeah. have told me they hung like, People, people have this vision in their minds of Cameron Smith, um, which I do too. I think it's completely warranted. But if we're talking about the nine K range, I think Xander and Smith are both around, are both like pretty close to even. I think they're both between like seventeen and twenty, and I don't think Fitzpatrick or Lowry are that far behind. Yeah, I agree with that, and I I wish it weren't so because I really like Shane Lowry a lot this week. Um, yeah. I think. I'm, I've cooled a bit on Cam Smith because my belief in how this is going to play has changed a little the more that I've thought about it. I came on this podcast last time uh, and talked about how they tell you on the first tee to just steer it left all day and miss the bunkers. You'll have a great day, lads. You know, get out there. Um, but that's what they tell you because they think you suck and they don't <laughs> want you to hit it into the course, right? Left is safe. Left is fine. Left is find your ball. Left is full of bad angles and bogeys, though. And it's really a nice way to get the amateur around the old course and have a nice day um, to really be competitive here. I think it's why Danny Willett said it favors a fader. You have to challenge the right on a lot of these holes. You got to challenge the out of bounds on the right. You got to challenge the bunkers on the right. You got to challenge the gorse on the right. And that opens up some of these holes, which is why I think about my round and we began the round hitting it left. Then, as my caddy realized, I don't suck. We, on number 12, uh, hit it down the right to a really tight spot. And then on number 16, I hit it, you know, right side of the fairway. and made a birdie from there. Like, I just remember the round opening up in that way and the caddy becoming more comfortable telling me the places that we actually want to hit the ball. Um, so, with that said, you know, Cam Smith's not exactly your reliable guy who's going to be able to push it down the right uh, you know, with a lot of precision. I think I've come to see this golf course as being more a place where guys who aren't quite as long but are really accurate off the tee can get a lot of roll and maybe, you know, compensate for their lack of distance and have a real good chance. Um, but he does have what we're talking about, sort of strokes gain, magic beans, strokes gain, right. vision, creativity, whatever you want to say. So Cam Smith is a bit of a – I think he's very risky. And for me, if he's going to come in at super high ownership, I will – play that risk in hopes that he, you know, his open championship form, which hasn't been very good continues and he blows 30, you know, 25% of these lineups out of the water or whatever it's going to end up being. Well, uh, yeah, we, you know, I was just, I was just going to add to what you're saying about how we talk about how these narratives formulate in the industry. And the narrative this week is creativity and magic beans. And 
uh, imagination. And Cam Smith fits that narrative and Jordan Spieth fits that narrative. So those guys are going to be two of the highest owned guys on the slate. Cam Smith fits that perfectly. And that's the, that's the one buzzword that you just hear everybody talking about this week is the creativity and imagination. And Cam Smith fits that better than Patrick Cantlay and Zalatoris, yeah, so. right? For sure. I mean, he's got a great set of hands. Um, I mean, the question is, <laughs> will he be able to drive it in the places he needs to drive it? Will, here's, here's the real question. Is he going to be scrambling for birdies, you know, from good spots? Or is he going to be scrambling for pars from tough spots? Like, how is he going to be using those magic beans? Because that, that's the real question um, with this golf course. Because if you hit it into the right spots, those pitches and those creative wet shots are, you know, you're trying to get it in there for birdies. Otherwise, you're trying to save uh, bad shots. But I like, I like a lot of what I see from Cam Smith, but I'm not sure I like him at crazy high ownership because I think there's enough – uh, downside risk that I'm probably willing to be out on him if he's going to come in as high as you think he is, which I agree with you that people want. He's another kind of feel good sort of guy that yeah. people like. You know, there's, it's hard to quantify that, but it, it really shakes out in the ownership at the end of the day. Uh, who do you think comes in higher between Zalatoris and Cantley? Do you think both those guys are like between 10 and 14, 10 and 15? I think, I think Zalatoris comes in lower. Because I think Cantley kind of earned himself just by playing well late in the last round. He's got a little bit of momentum. Right. Um, I think Zalator and Zalatoris being priced up a little bit higher, uh, I think people will tend to shy away from him and either go down to Cam Smith or up to Xander and Fitzpatrick. Um, but I think they both come in fairly under own. And I've, I don't think this course sets up great to highlight the skills of Zalatoris. Completely um, agree. He, he just would, doesn't not to step on it. Cause we'll do this at the end, yeah. but I think he misses the cut. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I could, I could see a lot of scenarios playing out with them. Right. I mean, as you talk, I heard you on a podcast and I, I agree entirely. This is not a golf course. That's going to stick a lot of five and six irons in your hand. Okay. Right. And that's just not, I don't see it anywhere. If anything, it's going to happen on par five. Like for instance, I think, uh, what fourteen a par five in the back? If it's playing downwind, you know you they're going to be getting there with a long iron or mid iron on that hole if you hit a good drive. Um, but I, I don't see a lot of it on the front nine. I mean, I think you're looking at more of wedges, weird wedges, punch shots, little punch eight and nine irons, things like that. So the advantage he would normally have at the U.S. Open, maybe not there. But if he drives it straight, like he sometimes can. Although in the U.S. Open, he hit quite a few foul balls, which was really strange, but. He drives it straight. He's going to be in good spots. I think his short game is can be pretty good. Um, he's an interesting DraftKings guy because I think he's going to make an sh- absolute shitload of birdies um, around this place. But I think he could also make a lot of bogeys and, and just be really volatile this week. So I don't know. I, I haven't exactly decided where I come down on Zalatoris um, yet. Last question. Not. Last question about the bottom of this DJ Hideki Hovland group. Who do you like the best, or who are you most likely to take a chance on? A and B, has the Hovland thing gone a little bit too far? Maybe I mean two percent for Victor Hovland. That feels like a real two percent too. That doesn't feel like a late steam. Come, we're wrong on that one. That feels like a legitimate two percent. If I think there's anyone that maybe sneaks up to ten, it's DJ because I think now it's cool to say no one's going to use the live guys 
which no one is going to use the live guys, but not no one's going to use the live guys, right? Like you're not sneaky playing Louie this week. So I, of those guys, like wh- where do you come down on those three at the bottom? Because they're, I think they're all going to be sub 10 and I think Victor could be sub four. <laughs> yeah. I think this is the range where you're going to win some money and it's going to differentiate your contest. If you can get it right. I like Shane Lowry quite a lot. So I'll be using him a lot, which means I'll be using the lower part of this range a little less. But of the three, originally I was going to play DJ for the reasons you stated, but I see what you're seeing, which is people kind of being comfortable, at least with him, uh, with his history there. I think he's going to come in a little higher on. I think Hideki is a bit of a mystery to me. The live stuff scares me with him. I think we've seen guys who are on their way out, if that's true. I mean, we don't know that, but you've seen those guys kind of play really bad before they, right. you know, the Brooks thing at the U.S. Open. So Hideki scares me. Hovland is not as bad. He probably is not as good as people wanted him to be. Certainly not as bad as people think he is right now. He's a definite buy low candidate for me because I, I think he can drive the ball so straight far here that if he does get really aggressive and he has just a great week off the tee, I think he's going to be – in some spots on this golf course, they give him a chance to make a lot of birdies. But again, obviously I'm scared by the short game and the putting bothers me a bit, but Pavlin is, is interesting. I, I don't love him. I wouldn't like him at all at 8%, but I think I love him at 2%. I mean, it's just a, you have so much leverage there and his price is really, really low. You're getting a kind of premium player who would have thought that he would be 600 lessons out Taurus, right? I mean, it's just, there's a big price discount there on a guy who has a lot of upside. So, you know, I mean, I'm going to land on him. I'm sure some of my lineups, particularly the mass builds. Well, what's interesting too is, you know, there are three or four guys in this range that are going to be the same owner. Like, okay. Say Hovland's a little too squeamish for you. You can play Brooks at 3%. You can play Bryson at 3% too. Um, of that group, Hovland, Brooks, Bryson, I think I'm probably most likely to take a chance on Brooks of those three. But I think that you could like, I don't like Bryson. I know both of us. I know both of us have our qualms with Bryson at this course. But I think what's so interesting to me about how it shakes out from Hovland and Hobdecki down is. It's not flat at all. Like, I think that Fleetwood and Finau are going to get a fair amount of ownership. I think both those guys are going to be in the 14 to 18 range, which is kind of a lot for the 8,000s. And I think that Brooks will be under five. I really do believe that. I think Bryson will be under three or four. I think Sungjae and Connors will be both single digits. Um, I still think Louie and Burns will be like... 10 or 11, because I just think that the way, the way that this shakes out for a lot of people is a lot of people are going to play like Xander or a lot of people are going to play like Spieth, Xander, Fitzpatrick or Rory or Rory Spieth or Rory Xander. And they're just going to end up skipping a lot of the eights. I think that's right. Uh, just, I'm glad you talked about that because it's, it's really a lineup construction issue. The eights, right. kind of, unless you're starting with Xander. Yeah, and then just going the eights, and a lot of the people aren't going to want to do that because there's just so much win equity in the nines that people want to play. You know, with Shane Lowry and, and 
people like that. So I think the eights are going to be a little bit neglected, but I do think you're right. I think, I think Fleetwood and certainly Finau are going to gobble up what ownership there is. I'll be peppering the eights because I think it's a, it's a range with some guys with a lot of upside and low ownership, right? I think I'll have a lot of Sung JM kind of going back to the, the well there on a guy who burned everybody at the U.S. Open. I was off of him, the free square. That's part of why I had such a great week, right? I mean, just destroyed so many lineups in the high stakes that it gave me a great week. But, you know, we're not off of him forever. Golf's a funny sport. So I'll have some of him. I have a lot of interest in Brooks. Uh, if me you too. Believe, if you believe that Brooks isn't, like, fundamentally broken, which I don't think he quite is, then this is the right spot for him. In a major where he's kind of back to being the villain and has had a little bit of time to sort of sort himself out. I mean, you could easily see him showing up here with a big middle finger to everyone and, I mean, not necessarily winning this golf tournament, but being there on Sunday. So, yeah, I'm willing to take that risk at 8,500, which is, I mean, think 8,500 is what we were playing Tiger at at the <laughs> Masters, right? I mean, this isn't, he's not priced up, right? I mean, he's, he's $300 more than Corey fucking Connors, uh, which, you know, love him or hate him, but, He's this is just a at that price point, you can take some chances with Brooks. Uh, Bryson's ownership is interesting to me because I, I mean, there is a scenario where he plays well here, but I, I doubt his health. And I think he's, I just don't want to, I, you get too cute, you just end up blowing up 25 of your lineups when you realize like Bryson wasn't healthy and he wasn't going to win here. Like, where was the upside really? Why did I just tank? you know, seven lineups that had a chance to win by trying to get that cute. So I'll probably end up off of Bryson. Um, but those guys are interesting. I think in order to win, you have to be willing to click the uncomfortable clicks and mm. that's what they are. Um, yeah, you can, the, you brought up a good point with the live stuff. I think you want to play the live guys where the dust is settled. And I think you want to avoid the live guys where there's a lot of smoke. Like I think right. Brooks and DJ, like, They've made their bed. This is where they are. They're not going to get asked about it. I don't think any of the live guys are on uh, the press conference. I don't think any of the live guys have press conferences this week. And yeah. you contrast that with the U.S. Open with Brooks. where Sideshow. Total sideshow. Total sideshow. And, I mean, he called it a dark cloud. Um, and his play reflected that, right? The dust is settled. He's Brooks ain't even getting a press conference this week. I don't even think he's got, like, a big-time group either. Uh, so I think that you probably want to play the guys because I think that there will be potentially another wave after this tournament. I think some guys are waiting till the end of major season. I think maybe the bigger wave will be after Eastlake because I think probably some guys want to have their cake and eat it too and maybe compete for the FedEx Cup and then go right after. But I think this major for a lot of the live guys is going to be a lot different vibe than what the u.s open was the u.s open was like weird for a lot of them and you heard players talk about it all week everybody that was media at the u.s open that went, i talked to all the golf digest guys and rick they were all like it was live non-fucking-stop, not just with us, but with the players. It was all anyone wanted to talk about not that it's not a storyline at all this week but again like i think that it's become somewhat normalized, if that makes sense. I think that's right. Yeah, that's that's how I've seen it. I think the RNA did a good job of kind of, you know, they took a hit with the Greg Norman <laughs> thing, right? But yeah. they sort of did that because that absorbed all the 
sort of live energy. And then it's been about the golf, really. I mean, the coverage has been great. It's been kind of a lot of excitement for the event. I think they've avoided the big circus conversation. Um, so we'll see. I want to ask you, and I guess we'll move down. Yeah, let's move to, down. I want to steal your thunder, but I've, I've got a question here. As I look at, uh, obviously, Max Holm is going to be popular because reasons, but yeah. as I look at Cam Young, hmm. Jack's to be higher on than Bob McIntyre and Mark Leishman and these other guys. Cam Young, who's been awful, who no one has wanted to play here recently, who has kind of lost our darling status in, in favor of Chris Goderup. <laughs> on the PGA Tour. Uh, the idea that he is projected this highly on some, some of this stuff tells me people are very much buying into the bomber narrative. But I see Tony Finau projected at 17.7 uh, on Fantasy National. Cam Young projected over 7% at 7,000, which is pretty significant. Um, that tells me people are just buying into that. And that is very interesting to me. That's the real confirmation that maybe – Ownership projections, you know, up the board will favor the bombers more than we thought. Because there's no other reason why people are clicking Cam Young other than they bought into this. You agree with that? Yeah, I agree with I, that. I, I wanted to ask you because I know you've consumed more content than I have this week. Is that still is that still kind of getting shouted from the rooftops? Cause I feel like some people are starting to see the browning out of the course and you know come around a little bit. Do you still think that's think still think people are rolling with that i do i've heard yeah. a lot of this place is wide open you can blast it i think that's <laughs> right. just the, the idea which is like you know as we talked about i don't know is entirely true all the it's funny kobe all the people that have been to st andrews <laughs> and are on the course in st andrews are like this is a placement course and all the people that are looking at st andrews from a bird's eye view are like this is a bomber's paradise <laughs> Oh, well, I think it's it's easy to see when you when you play it, and even when you watch people play it, right? I mean, it's what's kind of amazing about it is the holes that you see and think of the most are probably one, seventeen, and eighteen, um, and all of those are some of the more wide open kind of. Mm. Certainly, one and eighteen hit it where the hell you want, and so people see that and they kind of think that that's what the golf course is like, uh, but it's not. Those are totally unique and weird. Those holes are. Absolutely freaky. Um, nothing like them in the world. I love them, uh, but they're they're so strange. It's just built on a, a weird square or rectangular grid. The rest of the golf course is a little more shapely and meandering. So, but I think if you spend a little bit of time there and you watch how the ball is running and rolling and sort of the weird spots that it can end up, uh, you begin to understand a little more. So I think that this is where ownership does flatten out. I think there's some weird swings in the eight and nines with some really high guys and some really low guys. I think after Homa, who Homa will be chalk this week, I think Homa will be like 16, 17, 18%, which, you know, compared to the other guys in his range, I think Neiman will get some ownership too. But I think after Homa, this is where things flatten out. Do you see anybody below Homa? I think there's going to be obvious, there's going to be two or three or four guys over 10. Who do you think the best candidates are in the seven K range to get the most ownership in kind of the mid to low sevens. Uh, Seamus power. Yeah. I think people, and I've seen it just qualitatively people responding in my mentions and other places. I think there's been a lot of Seamus power love. It makes sense. Right. I mean, the whole Irish idea and he does hit a long way. He's an interesting 
play this week, but I think he's going to be very popular. And he's surrounded. Look at the sandwich. We talk about this all the time, right? Look at his sandwich. Not just his immediate sandwich, but his like double-decker sandwich. He's surrounded <laughs> by like the four biggest lands imaginable. I mean, maybe not, but pretty close. So he's in like a live villain sandwich, uh, which is is really interesting. And then, um, so, you know, I, I think Seamus Power is going to be kind of a high on option there for people in the sevens. Tiger is probably going to be five-ish, right? That sounds about right for Tiger. And you, you like him this week, Kobe. I know you do. <laughs> I like him every week. I love Tiger. I love Tiger every week. Do I like him every week? No. I Tiger, I think from what I've watched, and I watched him take quite a few more golf swings this week than I thought I would uh, right. early in the week because he's been all over TV. I do think he kind of has that understanding. I mean, I'm not breaking any new ground here, but if you think about how the course is going to play, he's not going to have to absolutely destroy driver. He's obviously okay. lost a step. He's not hitting it that far. He can he can get it around here in a way that is very familiar to him. He looks super comfortable in his little four-hole whiskey loop. I know it doesn't mean a lot, but he legitimately nearly played that four holes yesterday four under par. These are the four holes he's going to be playing. Now, I mean, the pins were just in the middle of the, of the greens, but, you know, he dr- drives it over the green on 18. That's the second day in a row he's done that. Um, hit a big drive on 17, and, you know, he hits the green there, which is always good. Obviously, he knows how to play these other holes on this golf course. I think Tiger – the questions I have about Tiger are less with the ball striking and more with the rust on the short game. Uh, right. That's not been great when we've seen him, and he's going to need that this week. But I think there's a scenario in which he summons or you got to think this is the championship where Darren Clark won and in his forties, this is the, this is the Tom Watson, not only win almost winning at Turnberry, but I think he finished like in the top five, another time in his fifties. Tom Watson has finished top 10 here a couple of times in his fifties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is Retief Goosen and the, when he was an old man in 2015, playing in the final three or four groups in, in 2010 as well. Like this is a weird place where old people play well. And I think there's a reason for that. Not just St. Andrews, but I just mean in the open in general. And Tiger is kind of getting there, right? He's got diminished skills, but so did all those guys. And they got it around with knowledge and guile and sort of creativity. So I think there's a scenario. And at 7,500, but I told you the other day, this is different than in the Masters where they're asking us to pay 8600 and hope he wins, right? This is this is kind of cutmaker territory. He's $100 more expensive than Lee fucking Westwood, who, you know, who do you like better there, Tiger or Westwood? I, so I'm willing to take a chance on him because the price I think is right. He's $100 cheaper than Abe Answer. Like, I mean, that's the range. I think that's the right range for him here, which makes him intriguing. Uh, two quick things on Tiger. So... I would make the argument that these are like the best course conditions possible for him. I think that the firmer and browner it gets, the more it becomes about craft. Um, And I saw even there's a video of him today hitting like chippy little four irons where the ball really left. I mean, that's, that's how Tiger wins. That's how Tiger contends. My only thing is the four rounds. So I think Tiger is actually a really good round one or two showdown play. Because I, I am pretty confident that Tiger is going to have at least one or two really good rounds. I think a, I think betting Tiger first round leader is a better bet than betting Tiger to win. 
I'm also pretty confident he's going to have a bad round. And I would probably guess that bad round is going to come in round three or round four. So I'm trying to figure out, because I like Tiger too, trying to figure out the best way to deploy him. Is the best way to deploy him in a week-long DraftKings lineup? Is the best way to deploy him in, in a showdown lineup? Is the best way to deploy him as a top 40 bet or a um, in a matchup or in a round-by-round round matchup? Like That's kind of how I'm... That's what I'm struggling with with Tiger the most is do I really do I really want to get down on Tiger in a four round DraftKings contest? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think if you're playing him in DraftKings in a full four round deal, what you're hoping for is at that price, he's your fifth man and he finishes T14. You know, his bad round, you hope it's a 74 instead of a 78. You right. hope he shoots you hope he shoots 69, 70 74 68 right and comes in t14 at minus six or whatever that number comes out to be which i i do think is in his range of possibilities right i I don't know i'm not gonna say that's the top of his range because i see a scenario where tiger not maybe doesn't win but contends more deeply than like you know a backdoor t17 or whatever but i think that's that's a that's a scenario that you could you know reliably plug into his range. Um, but there may be better ways to deploy him out there. I mean, I think his like top 40 markets and top 20 markets are probably good places on the betting side. Uh, if you well, can find it, I- I'm going to send you 20 bucks for the 110 on Circa. He got to 140 earlier today. Did it really? Someone hit it. Um, and it's back to 110. 140. I mean, you're getting kind of ridiculous at that point, right? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll put some fun money on, on plus 110 just to see because it'd kind of be fun to hold that ticket at the end of the week you know oh yeah it's a it's a donation it's basically it's like our donation to what he's done um (laughs) let me ask you this question kobe of sergio who we played every major this year (laughs) patrick reed taylor gooch abe answer the live foursome in this range who do you like the most sergio Really? I love Patrick Reed this week. Yeah, I don't mind Reed. I actually don't mind. I don't like answer. Um, and I know the short game stuff with answer, I think, will be his bugaboo here. Because I think mm-hmm. his sort of ball striking, the way this is going to play, sets up okay for him. You know, he can kind of – it's his distance isn't going to hurt him. He'll be able to get it around. I just think he could he could struggle a little bit around these greens. Um, but I really like Sergio. I think he – I think he's – I think he has something here. I think I think this golf course suits his eye, um, but I like Reed too. It's I mean, in terms of strokes gain, sort of scrambling and and magic beans and creativity or whatever we want to call it. I think he's going to be able to visualize the shots better than a lot of guys. So I don't hate Reed, and I think he's been playing okay, you know, prior to the live stuff. So and at that price, um, those would be my two. But I, I don't think I would go with answer. And I don't know Taylor Gooch to me. I don't. I haven't seen enough open form to want to take the risk on him, and he's not. Like, people like Goose this week. I don't think he's going to be sneaky at all. Which is no. <laughs> like, no. if I'm going to play Taylor Gooch in this spot, he better be two percent old, right? I mean, that's I'm not. I'm not playing eight percent Taylor Gooch. Yeah, I listened to Abraham answer on the No Laying Up podcasts. I don't know when it came out. It was maybe six months ago. It was certainly before all the live smoke was getting out of control. And I think players go to live for a number of different reasons. But I remember 
answer list, listening to answer on that podcast and being like, oh, that guy cares about his tequila company a lot. Um, <laughs> at where, <laughs> and listen, that's not to say that, um, you know, he's not, he doesn't also care about winning the 150th open, but I think at least with Reed, I trust like Reed's phoniness a little bit more. Like I, I think Reed really believes that he is competing at live, whereas answer maybe saw it just a little bit more as a smart business decision. But Reed, I think he, he really, like he was, he was fist pumping and stuff like that. And I think, I think Reed's really talked himself into it and talked himself into, he's going to have it both ways. And he, what he is doing every week and on these weeks is competing at the highest level. Whereas with answer, it's like, I think answer maybe has a little bit more self-awareness. I think so too. I'm sure he's kind of laughing watching (laughs) guys almost dj obviously we saw the smirk whenever gooch is saying right. thing. <laughs> like you know, some of these guys know what's going on here but reed and bryson are kind of the nerds who don't like they have the those guys have like the weird social they don't have the social awareness you know right. so they're kind of not they're not in on the joke which is kind of funny but and predictable given what we know about them um yeah i moving down the board a little bit let me throw a name at you and i saw okay. some really interesting line movement that has perked my ears up, particularly okay. in his ownership role. Um, Jason Kokrak was 225 to one at Circa uh, mm. yesterday afternoon. He is now 140 to one. That is a large price movement. As someone who has moved lines at Circa before, um, I don't know that I've ever moved one that hard. I think I moved Russell Henley 50 spots at the Masters, but <laughs> someone has laid a lot of money on him which isn't indicative of anything other than someone showing up and betting a ridiculous number on Jason Kokrak. But, you know, at a place, I mean, his game, he's been sketchy, but it was really good at the Masters. He's, he's had his moments this year. He's obviously not in great form, but this is a place where I think he could potentially play okay. Um, and at that ownership level, sort of being incredibly forgotten at $7,200, I think I'm going to have a little bit of him here. Pretty good sell. I've been playing him. I haven't been having a ton of success playing him. I played him last week because I liked the Tom Doak Houston Open thing a little bit. Yeah, this range is... There are a lot of names down here that I like, and I don't think once you get below Seamus, I don't really... I mean, maybe Mito catches a little bit. People still love Mito, and I know that um, Jordan Smith is you know, a bit of a thing with the guys that are a little bit more plugged into Euro. And then there's Fox and Woodland. I guess those four guys that I mentioned are like the only candidates I would say to get up close to 10. Even a guy like Varner that I think a lot of people like who I kind of like this week. I don't think Varner is really more than five, six this week. Varner almost always comes in less on than you think he will, um, yeah. which is strange to me because he feels like a, almost like a maximum of light in terms of popularity, in terms of social media, things like that. But right. people just don't click him. I think there's something about, he has the Scotty Scheffler thing. And I think I'm, I may want to do some research on like aesthetic value of how pretty your swing looks compared to your ownership <laughs> percentage, right? Like King Griffey Jr., if he were around during DFS days, would have been 80% on because it's beautiful. And Rory, obviously, that's why he commands that. People don't like the way Varner swings. It doesn't feel like he's good because he looks weird doing it. Um, so I think there's something to that. I think he comes in a little lower than the projection. I'll tell you who I really like who's laid out is Sahith. That's just a 
talent play. The only concern that I have with Sahith, the reason why I'm going to temper my expectations for him, he he hits driver all the time. Like he, I remember listening to the interview after the Travelers and when he got, you know, there was some criticism over that decision to hit driver on the 18th hole when he, he ended up losing to Xander. It was never a question that he was going to hit driver. And I worry a touch that he's going to be a little his his strategies yeah strategy is going to be a little reckless for the old course but uh i also love sahith well you know reckless is another word for kind of high variance high volatility so right. I mean, it, it, it might work out you know and that's the thing and it might not when i say work out we're not talking about round disasters we're talking about hole by hole disasters right like birdies and bogeys which is really what you're looking for in DraftKings, particularly so i don't I don't hate the aggressive style. If our real goal, you know, if he piles up a bunch of birdies in route to just making the cut and then, you know, he finishes T30, but he scores like a guy who finishes T12, that's probably enough to, to win you a good amount of money. So I don't hate him. Um, the one guy I won't be playing this week because I will not be fooled again is Frankie Meats, the meat man. He will not, <laughs> will not be on my card. Um, despite the good open championship form, I, I well, at 1.7%, he, he is interesting and he will be interesting, but God, he's just been dreadful. He's just so he's moved halfway around the world. He's just a different man than when he was, uh, taking home Claret jugs. So how many guys do you have started in the sixes? I have four. Oh, let's look. I did a lot of starring last night. I, <laughs> It's like too much and a worrying amount. All right, I've got two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Oh my gosh. But how many now, of those guys are you actually how many of those guys are gonna make your your final pool estimated? Four, five, maybe. I'll whittle this down. I starred them because I read something interesting or saw something interesting and needed to remember them because yeah. so they're not memorable. Um, I will whittle that down. Like for instance, I have four guys starred at the $6,300 level and I will play one of them probably. Right. I have, that's kind of the way I'll do this. I, it's almost like I've got four candidates at each price point or five and I'm going to pick the one I like the most. Uh, but who are yours? I'm curious. Okay. Do you want to go? I have three that I really want to mention real quick. And I love talking about these guys because I don't even really have, to, you don't have to worry about ownership. Like I could give, we right. can give our hashtag picks and you know, there's still people who still are going to be like, you guys are fucking insane. Um, <laughs> but do you want to go back? You want to go back and forth? I'll give you one. Then you give me one. Sure. Let's do it. Okay. Um, I think Dylan Fertelli could fuck around and finish top five here. Why not? He finished top five at the Masters in 2020, and he finished top five at Royal St. George's last year. Um, I bet him to win at 300 to one. I did a majors preview podcast in December, and I said, you want a really deep long shot at St. Andrews? Give me Dylan Fertelli, who's finished top five at two majors, including an open championship, and hits the ball a long way off the tee and can scramble his ass off. He's coming off a T47 at the Scottish Open where he gained three off the tee, 2.8 on approach, and lost six strokes putting. So that is some serious, serious ball striking for a man that has two top five finishes at majors and is 6,800 and will be 3%. Oh, he's start. He's one of the 14. Don't you worry. So, <laughs> he's a good uh, play, man. I'm hey, proud let me of tell you this. One. 
when I get there on Wednesday, if you want, you can have 355 to one at the Circon for Telly right now. Oh, man. I think I, I mean, got to. Yeah. That's a juicy, ju- I'm going to be honest, juicy price. Are you kidding me? 355 to one? Get out of here. Oh, I mean, he's, I think he has upside. He's starred for me. Um, I'll give you the most boring of the 6,000s. Kevin Kisner. Ooh, okay. Carnoustie? Yeah. Played okay at Carnoustie. Um, kind of strokes gain, got that dog in him. You know? Yeah. I mean, not UGA style, but just kind of a, he competes. I mean, played coming off some decent form. I mean, putted his balls off at the Travelers to be there. But, like, if you put your balls off in order to finish top five, like, that's different than, oh, he putted his balls off so he could finish T47, right? I mean, obviously you have to strike it at least okay to be up there. So I don't mind Kisner here. And I think he's going to be – you'll notice a trend in some of my guys. I think he'll benefit from the firm fairways and not having to bomb it out there quite as much. Okay, my next guy is where it gets a little bit grosser, but Zach Johnson has played in 16 Open Championships. He's made the cut 12 times. He has eight top 25s, three top 10s, and obviously he's won at St. Andrews. But it wasn't a situation where one thing that I noticed that I did not realize at all, to be honest with you, it wasn't just like Zach Johnson randomly won St. Andrews. Like He has been awesome in this tournament. T16 in 2011, T9 in 2012, T6 2013, T12 2016, T14 2017, T17 2018. Over two decades, Zach Johnson is finishing top 25 in about 50% of the open championships he's played in. And I do think that Augusta and St. Andrews are similar in the sense that just like Augusta this year, where Danny Willett and Carl Schwarzel were at the top of the leaderboard on Friday afternoon. Like, I think these are just courses that are really good to their people and really reward people, past champions that understand the nuances of this course. And I'm not surprised if Zach Johnson is like, like, I don't think that I think he's going to finish top 40. I bet him like plus 450 to finish top 40. Um, He's going to like one of the, it's going to be one of those guys. I'm telling you right now, there's going to be a crusty old guy, whether it's tiger or ZJ or one of these guys. Yeah. And so one of these guys, and I think Zach Johnson is probably the best bet of those statistically. He's still an incredible bunker player, an incredible, uh, lag putter, an incredible, like flip wedge player inside 125 yards. He's like, He's finishing top 25 on the PGA Tour, like 14th Amex, 13th Valero, 23rd Colonial. I think Zach Johnson at 6,500, I think you can go there and not feel as gross about it as maybe you'd think. Yeah, it's a good sell. He's also starred for me um, for many of the reasons you just said. Uh, Again, I told you there's a theme with my guys. Short player is going to benefit from the firm fairways and feel comfortable hitting it, you know, being pretty accurate and getting it around and wedging it around. And he doesn't have to win for you at 6,500. I think there's a lot of upside. Talked about the Open Championship leaderboard at St. Andrews, sometimes having your Retief Goosen and your, you know, I mean, why can't it be Zach Johnson? I mean, it can. Why, if right. Paul Dunn can lead this tournament, why can't Zach Johnson, right? I mean, it's a it's a place that kind of rewards guys who who can get it around. So I don't mind that. Um, you, want, you want my next one? Watch your next one, yep. I'm just going to skip Brian Harmon because he's basically Kevin Kisner left-handed. Um, <laughs> how about Luke List? How about him? Killed me last so, week. 
not not a uh, not a short driver, of course, but obviously a great ball striker. I think he's very comfortable clubbing down when he needs to. You see, Luke List had a lot of irons off tees, um, you know, when it's required. I think he's a smarter player than people think. He's got some sneaky, uh, decent open form. Um, I think he's putting is obviously very scary, particularly in the wind. Um, and the lag putting, he's not great at that. But I think being on slower greens will benefit him. I mean, where you hate Luke List is where he's running your six-footer four feet by and missing the comebacker, right? I don't think you're going to see a lot of that this week, so that takes some of the brunt out of it. Um, I think he's just – he's kind of a hardy player as well. I mean, Luke List plays okay in tough, uh, tough conditions, firm conditions. He's played – you know, he claims to love the Genesis, right, where it always plays right. so firm. Um, so I like him at 6,800, particularly at his ownership. I mean, if he's coming in between Chris Kirk and Mackenzie Hughes, who people both love, and he's going to come in 1%, I mean, lower owned than Justin Harding and KH Lee. And I mean, I I think he's going to score too. I think he's going to, he's going to drive a couple of these greens. I think he's going to score really well. And if he can get through the cut, you know, he's dangerous just because of that scoring ability. Um, last guy for you, buddy. Um, this one is <laughs> so let's talk about Kita Nakajima for a minute who's the number one amateur in the world this guy might be like I'm hearing a lot of Tom Kim as a free square give me yeah. Nakajima instead at four at $200 cheaper so it's really tough to analyze this guy obviously he has he's played on the PGA Tour four times he went 28th at the Zozo 41st at the Sony Open, miscut at the Masters, miscut at the U.S. Open. The miscut at the U.S. Open, he actually hit the ball really not okay, not really well. That's that's a lie. I just lied there. He hit the ball fine and missed the cut because he lost four strokes short game and putting. And obviously, he's been tearing up the Japan Tour. Um, so I think at 6,200, this is a guy that you can put in two or three of your lineups. And he is getting some of the, I think he's getting some of the St. Andrews treatment this week with, cause he's the number one amateur in the world where he's playing in like a game. I haven't, I, I don't know who he's, who's paired up with, but I think he's playing in one of the Tuesday or Wednesday games. Um, he might be really fucking good. And he didn't, he hit the ball pretty well at the U S open and, you know, he's finished top 40 at the Zozo and the Sony on the PGA tour too. So, I think at 6,200, you could you take a shot on Keita. He's another guy I played. He was like 15 to one top 20 and like eight and like six or eight to one top 40. Um, I like that one a lot. That's the lowest I'd go. All right. I think he's fun this week um, and I don't mind it. I'll give you two more. This okay. isn't all. Obviously, I have a lot of guys start. I think both these guys are interesting <laughs> and they, they go down lower. Matthew Jordan. Okay. Wow. $6,600. $6, um, he's a English kid. Uh, and I, we talk about, I don't want to look at like Danny Willett's Dunhill links form to tell me, I think he's going to win this, but somebody low down the board who's played really well at St. Andrews. I, I am interested in, he finished fifth in the 2019 Dunhill and that included a 29 at the old course. Okay. Um, and well, he shot 64, but he went out in 29 on the front nine. Um, has played really good links golf. He won the St. Andrews links trophy as an amateur, big amateur tournament there. 
Um, this is his major debut, but you know, he made the cut at the Scottish Open, made the cut of the Irish Open, which not links, but you know, it is it's something. So he's playing decent. Um, he's a guy, he was T18 last year at the Scottish Open and T12 last year at the Irish Open. So some form, I think, whenever it comes to to playing in Scotland and, and playing some link style courses. So I think he's interesting. I think he's gonna feel good around there. Um, the only problem, first major start, you know, can he do it? I don't know. But I find him interesting at that price. The second guy, I will say, moving even further down the board, is Jamie Donaldson, right? The old yeah. uh, old hat from uh, from the Ryder Cup days. So Donaldson uh, made the cut here in 2015. I mean, he finished 49th. Not great, but he made the cut. Uh, and he's been playing better. Uh, top 10 last week in Scottish. That got him into this field. Uh, I'm pretty sure he made the cut at the Irish Open as well. Confirm that before I give out bad information. No, yeah, it's been a uh, so, yeah, yeah. Coming off a T20 at the Irish and a and T6 at Scottish, like that's about as good a form as you're going to get from a guy like Jamie Donaldson. He was T8 at the British Masters, uh, you know, which is a huge tournament for them. Um, T2 last year at the BMW PGA Championship. Uh, 24th at the Spanish Open. I mean, so these are all the the biggest events that you're going to see on the European Tour. T27 at the European Masters last year. Um, so playing really, really, really good golf uh, in the biggest spots. So, you know, maybe a little bit of form coming back here uh, and, and obviously riding some some hot form and has played well at the old course before. And I think he's, uh, he's going to come in at absolutely no ownership. He's kind of... When you play Jamie Donaldson, he sort of has more pedigree than the other guys that you're going to see around this. And I think he kind of fits the older guy, could play well here narrative. So at $6,300, he, if he can make a cut and finish T28, you know, you can do a lot with that. So I think I'll have him in my player pool, uh, certainly in the mass builds. Final question, as always, pick to win and one guy above, we'll say 9K, that misses the cut. You want to lead us off? Yeah, I do. Um, Scotty Scheffler, okay. uh, who I will have a large position on, as I said. I, I'm going to bet him outright. Uh, he's going to be in a lot of my DraftKings stuff. I've told my mom, who is my accountability partner, that I am betting him. <laughs> and if I don't bet him and he wins, I will have her to answer to. Um, because she says I should like him more because he is very good. That's just total like golf fan, turns it on on Sunday and wonders why he's not in more of my lineups. Like. A good thing to keep you accountable. I say, I don't know, Mom. I don't know why he's not more well on it. So, uh, Scotty uh, picked a win. Got to miss the cut over 9K. Mm. Uh, Cam Smith. Wow. Wow. Okay, that's a good one. That's a little more ballsy than I went. I think Zalatoris is going to miss the cut. And I... I just, like... I'm it's Rory. I just <laughs> the obvious guy has um has a pretty good track record this year. And so I feel like a total square and I feel like I'm willing trying to will this into existence. But I've been saying Rory here for months, said it in December, and I I'm sticking to my guns here. I've dug my own grave with it. I, I think Rory can do it. Well, my betting card is going to have two names on it, maybe three, not including Tiger, which is just more of a um, 
protecting don't for, my heart. Don't forget that's, Fratelli. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, the Tiger bet is protecting my heart up from Sunday and having to root against him kind of bet because I just can't do it. Um, but it, I know it's weird. I, I think I'm probably just going to bet Rory and, and Scotty for big, big, giant challenges. Call it a day. Yeah, versus Pepper and the board. Because I, I think, I mean, I see the scenarios that you see with Rory. Um, and like I said, thing about betting Rory, the best thing about it, you know you're going to be in it. You're, sometime on Saturday or Sunday, you're going to feel like you have a chance to win that bet, which is a lot more than you can say with the average outright. Um, and he, he's a good, he's a bad steward of your money and that he, he's just not been winning these majors, but he's a good steward of your money and that he is there and he is, he's going to give you a chance. So no, I don't hate it. You're off to Vegas tomorrow, uh, tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow afternoon. Yeah. I'll be there, uh, for my normal degeneracy, which, uh, it starts at 10 30 PM. I usually get a steak and I try to stay up as long as I can to watch the golf. Then I fade away sometime in the early morning. I wake up in the afternoon. I go play golf, and then I'm back at 10:30 playing craps and trying to stay up as long as I can again. And people are looking at me. You come to Vegas to watch golf? Who does that? And then I'm like, No, it's actually really cool. They're like, Okay, it is cool. By the by the time I explain the process, more people want to be doing it. So I would recommend it to anybody. Either you go all the way to Scotland so that your time clock is normal, or you go all the way to the West Coast so it's totally fucked up. And then you, you know, see, see how long you can stay up with it. Uh, where are you playing in Vegas? So I'm staying at the shadow. <laughs> oh, dog. where am I playing golf? Yeah. Um, I wish I, I could, I've played shadow before, you know, it, you can really only get on Monday through Thursday. So I would really only have one day to do it since I'm getting in late Wednesday. Um, I'm probably going to play the win, which is not a great golf course, but I just love roll. I'm staying at the it's win. Fun. I love roll. I love rolling out of bed uh, after watching golf and then going and playing the win. Um, we'll see. Uh, I'll probably just will play one round, but we'll see. I may play more. Depends. I'm not exactly sure how hot it's supposed to be. I'm sure it's going to be a thousand degrees. So that may affect my schedule, but we'll see. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And then, you know, I don't know if the listeners know this. I've only mentioned this on every podcast I've done and in every conversation I've done with, <laughs> with, uh, I'm saying it to people on the street pretty much at this point, but me and Kobe will be going to Bandon Dunes in October pretty soon. Yeah. It's right going to be awesome. Corner. Yeah. I'm really glad you're able to come. We're going to have an awesome time. Um, I'm sure we'll record a Bandon pod with uh, oh, yeah. the best Bandon thoughts since no one has ever done a podcast about Bandon Dunes. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to have a good time. I, I, I've watched Andy beat up on, you know, every person in the fancy golf industry. So I, I have to sharpen my, my game a little bit, make sure I can give you some competition. So <laughs> yeah, I've got Kirshner and Saul Goodman tomorrow. We're running it back, which should be okay. uh, which should be a blast. Um, no, be Kobe DuBose, where uh, you got anything to plug anything, uh, anything else? I was doing a podcast with Capper last night and uh, he said, he's going to have you on soon. Yeah, I think he That'd wanted to uh, wanted to uh, sort of review the open and talk about cool. some other stuff. So love those guys. Yeah, I'm around. You know, you can find me wherever you get your podcasts. No, I'm 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 a friend of a lot of pods, but I don't really have anything to plug, which is probably my favorite thing about me. I'm not here. <laughs> I'm just here to talk to the people with my friends. You know, so if, if, you, if you find my insight valuable, you can follow me on Twitter, Debose Defense. As I tell you all the time, prepare for about 85% golf and maybe 15% um, lawyer takes. 
which some of that stuff's interesting. So you may, you may learn something. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm usually on there a good bit. If you want to reach out and ask me questions or, you know, get to know me or whatever, feel free to do so. Um, but this was fun. Like always, I look forward last major of the year, a little sad, but look forward to obviously picking this back up, uh, with whatever we have going on in the future. I was about to ask you if you had any hot takes on the DOJ stuff, but, uh, I, God. you know, I, what? Almost... <laughs> I do have I, I, the DOJ. Okay. We, we have fights with the DOJ all the time, just because they're investigating somebody for something doesn't mean shit. Uh, particularly an instant, an organization like the PGA that has a lot of lawyers who have been thinking a lot about what's going on here. So whether they made a mistake and maybe there's something actionable there, I don't think that this, I don't think anything like overtly criminal has taken place here. Right. So right. I, I hope people don't think that because the DOJ is involved, that there's some big scandalous, like criminal idea. What it's really going to be is a super boring legal fight about the nuances of the antitrust, antitrust law. laws. Yeah. Similar to what you got with like athletes being paid at Northwestern, which was not scandalous at all. But you know, that's, that's all going to play out with very high paid people. Um, some on the government side and others at, uh, very fancy law firms yelling at each other for a series of months to years. So welcome to my world. <laughs> uh, and just like that, that is Kobe Dubose. You find him on Twitter at Dubose Defense. Good to see you, man. I'll see you in Oregon in a month and a half, my friend. Oh my God, it's so close. It's going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to it. All right, that is it for the podcast. Special thanks to Kobe. Special thanks to RickRunGoods.com. One more final reminder. We have a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts to be entered into a draw to win $200, announcing that on Sunday. And once again, thanks for all the support this week. I am always incredibly humbled on these major weeks, and they make doing all the work that I do during them uh, and the longer nights an incredibly rewarding experience. So best of luck with your bets this week. Enjoy the open and we'll be back on this podcast feed on Sunday. Cheers. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where a mobile steel rims crack And the dead shed the back roads stop